Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the preciousness and the power of it. And uh, we thank you now that we can turn to this uh, letter and, uh, and learn something together from it. Lord, we thank you for its sufficiency and suitability. We thank you for the parallels that there are here with our own culture. And uh, we pray that both today and over the next few weeks you would be with us as we seek to understand ourselves and what we're doing. Um, We pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and that you would uh, give us grace that our faith and our courage and our love might be deepened as a result of looking at this letter together. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. When I heard the gate going there, I thought it was the speaker arriving. That would be a bit awkward now, wouldn't it? What do you do in that? What do you do then? (laughs) We're going to make a start. Um, Well, keep your Bibles open in uh, the book of Titus. That would be really helpful. I think the one disadvantage with speaking about this off the cuff now is that we haven't got any slides, so I'm going to have to work extra hard to be as um, logical and clear as possible. I think the backdrop to this, what what has drawn my heart to this letter, first of all? I think there's been a lot of things going on in our church in this last year. There's a lot of things going on for me, uh, culturally, around us, both locally and nationally. And one of the things that I think has been very, I I think, pressed upon me a great deal in my own devotions is is this simple truth that the only agent for change in God's world is the gospel the thing that transforms people's hearts, lives and ultimately communities is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and I think that's been clear as we thought about the church kind of culture that we're part of um, you'll remember recently that we did a little bit of a one-off where I was talking about some aspects of church. And I've been talking to non-Christians about this whole subject as well. On the one hand, we, we have churches. I, I, I often think that churches fall into one of two categories. They're either wacky or liberal, which is very sad. Now, that's a generalisation, obviously, but I'm talking about negatives. And the wackiness is partly a result of people not having a confidence in the gospel. I think this is the way people think. They look out into culture and they think, no one will ever believe this, will they? If we start preaching this stuff, I mean, people will just leave. And they'll never believe it. So what we need to do is we need to add something else to it so that people will get the message. And in many cases, what that leads to is an overemphasis on the supernatural. Miracle. We, we, we need to see God at work in tangible ways that people can see so that they'll then believe this message that actually doesn't really stand on its own merit. On the other hand, you've got churches that become very liberal and become nothing more really than a social club. And uh, it's very nice to go to them. Generally, middle-class, respectable people are involved in churches like this. It's all very nice, but it may as well be a Crown Green Bowling Club or a Knitting Club or something of that ilk. 
And the underlying reason for that is that over the years, people have come to the conclusion that the gospel doesn't change people's lives. I was talking to the Muslim man next door in the shop here. Well, he doesn't run the shop, but he's a landlord for the complex next door. And he said to me, it must really drive you mad being a minister of a church. You're, you're banging your head against a brick wall, mate. Nobody's ever going to listen to you. And, um, I, well, that, that, that's the tone, isn't it? Does anyone actually believe in the power of the gospel? So that's an important thing for us to think about, isn't it? Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is his self-deprecating way of saying, I'm puffing my chest out with pride in the gospel, because, why? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God's plan A for his world is the coming of Jesus into the world and as we've been singing his death and resurrection in our place because we're sinners and Paul says here in Titus uh, chapter 1 and verse 3 at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our saviour for Paul his strategy was not to give up on the one hand or to appeal to the miraculous on the other hand. His strategy was to preach the gospel that God had given to him. And wherever he went, that's what he did in different ways. He begins in different places, depending where he is. When he's with religious people, he begins with the Old Testament and he proves to them that Jesus is the Christ. When he's on Mars Hill in Athens, he begins with where they are. He doesn't begin in the Old Testament, but he begins with their culture and leads them to Jesus and righteousness and resurrection and repentance from where they are. He's very tuned in to his hearers, but all the time, Paul's methodology and strategy is to preach the gospel. Because it is the gospel that is the agent for change. Now, we're a small church here. And I'm excited about the way that our church is moving forward and growing. But what will be the catalyst for change won't be my clever ideas or your clever ideas or having services in a different venue or doing all sorts of wacky stuff. The thing that will be the agent for change is the gospel. The power of the gospel. God's clear message for the human race that is summed up in the coming of Jesus and that isn't just for unbelievers what is the agent for change in your lives as Christian believers this is not just something where we say the gospel came to me and I believed it and I'm a Christian and I'm going to spend my whole life now just doing my best to be a middle class respectable person the agent for change in all of our lives remains the gospel and that brings us neatly uh, to Titus I think one of the we'll get on to Crete and Titus in a little while but I want to just show you as an overview that the big, the big deal here for Paul is what we might think of as a gap between what people say they believe and how they behave that's a big issue for Paul as he thinks about Titus and his work here in Crete Verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. This is not a perfect scenario. There are churches that have been planted here in a very difficult culture, as we'll see. And the issue 
is there's a gap between what people believe and how they behave. That's why I think Paul begins in his introduction. Just look with me at um, verse 1. His very, very first point is, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that does what? That does what? That leads to godliness. The agent for change in the world and in the church is the knowledge of the truth. What will lead to godliness in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our communities is a knowledge of the truth. That's the agent for change, the gospel. And he says it right there. And all the way through this letter, he speaks about the way that faith affects behaviour. He talks in chapter 1 about leaders and the importance of them teaching the truth. And what does he say in verse 10 and 11? There are many rebellious people, talkers, deceivers, especially those of the legalistic circumcision group. They must be silenced. Why? Because they are ruin, ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Do you see that connection? The things that are going into people's homes, the things that people are being taught, are ruining whole households, whole families. Because the way they behave will depend and be shaped by what they learn and what they know. As we go through the letter, Paul, Paul makes some brilliant doctrinal statements here. Chapter 2 and verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, and how will they be marked? They'll be eager to do what is good. The gospel brings about change. These then, Titus, are the things you should teach. We could go into chapter 3. And uh, we could read all the verses there in the beginning of chapter 3. But what's Paul's conclusion in verse 8? This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to what? To devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And he says to Titus, don't get mixed up in genealogies and old wives' tales. Preach the gospel because that is the agent for change. There should be no gap between faith and godliness. And that's as true for us 2,000 years later as it was for these people here in Crete. Well, what about Crete? Has anyone been to Crete? Margaret? Was it, did I say another hand? No? There was a lot. I know there are people who might be thinking of going to Crete. Is it Andrew and Angela you're going this year? Possibly. Crete is a great place to go on holiday. But uh, we might well say it was no holiday for Titus. Paul, it's quite difficult to fit this with the book of Acts because I think this is happening after the book of Acts. At the end of Acts we find Paul under house arrest 
And I think the only conclusion we can draw is that Paul was released from that and made some other missionary journeys that are not recorded for us in the book of Acts. And, um, and, and part of that was that he, he ended up here in Crete with Titus. Paul had been to Crete before, but only as a prisoner. And um, it, it seems that after the book of Acts, Paul went to Crete with Titus and, and then leaves him here while he goes off to do some other stuff. What do we know about the culture of Crete? Well, there's, there's one verse here that's quite fascinating. Verse 12 is a quotation from a poet. And I wish I knew how to say his name. Epenimedes, is it? I don't know. But this verse has become known as a logic problem. Because, it, it, well, in the NIV here it says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. So that's one of their own, making a judgment on their culture. The reason it's a logic problem is, you, you could translate that, all people from Crete are liars, but if he's from Crete, does that include him? And if he's saying that, does that mean that he's lying, which means that the people in Crete are not liars? University students study questions like that when they're doing philosophy degrees. This is known as the Epenimedes problem. Uh, is, is it a true statement to say that Cretans are all liars when he's one of them? There's something for you to think about on the obvious Sunday roast. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. I think we talked about this in communion a few weeks ago. The, the people of Crete had a reputation for being brutish. They had a reputation for doing anything for money. There are many secular commentators outside the Bible who are straining language to describe just how immoral and, uh, and violent and corrupt this culture was. So, so some of my prep this week has been to think about some of that history. And it's been, uh, that's been a fascinating exercise. I don't know whether some of you will be aware of um, sort of this you know, Greek uh, history. Um, there was a famous king, a mythical king called King Minos 1500 years before the time of Christ and maybe some of you will be familiar with a civilization known as the Minoan civilization and it was kind of built on, on legend but they, they built huge palaces if you go to Crete you can still see the ruins of their great palace at Knossos spelt with a K, Knossos um, and this King Minos was the guy who was supposed to be the owner of the labyrinth where the minotaur lived and a kind of strange creature body of a man, the head of a bull who fed on humans the Minoan civilization was a great and prosperous civilization I suppose being an island in the Mediterranean a lot of that was based on fishing and kind of sea type uh, jobs but there was an earthquake or, or an eruption uh, caused uh, on, the, on, a, on a nearby island and the whole island was overrun by the Greek civilization and the Minoan civilization went into decline. I think part of the, um, the history, we, we, we've talked about this a little. When, when we think about our Western culture, I want you to think about that idea of decline. 
and I'm, I'm not going to revisit it now. I haven't got any notes here, so I'm kind of speaking off the cuff as well. The, the whole period of history that we've been through with the Age of Enlightenment and modernism, when we went into the 1900s, the whole of Europe had a sense of glorious optimism. Britain particularly was an empire. We, I, I, you know, Britain seems to have owned half the world at that point. And we go into the Victorian era feeling, era feeling that we can solve any problem with science, rationality. In the 1800s, Charles Darwin lived through the whole of the 1800s. He was born at the beginning, died near the end. And his kind of um, theories of natural selection were jumped on and, and, and latched onto. There, there were people in Germany who began what became known as schools of higher criticism about the Bible. The whole of church history, for example, has reflected on the fact that this is genuinely one of Paul's letters to his friend Titus. No one in church history has debated that until about 1850. But these schools of higher criticism have attacked all different parts of the Bible, suggesting that maybe Paul didn't actually write this, maybe someone else wrote it, the language seems a little bit late. For All of those questions have answers. But in, in, in that period, as we go into the 1900s, God has been squeezed out and mankind believes we can solve our own problems. We don't need God at all. God is dead. R.I.P. God. And there's this sense of we're going to educate our way and manage our way and reason our way to utopia. Now you tell me, you, we've, we've not all been alive for the whole of the 1900s obviously, but you tell me, was the 1900s a successful century in the history of the human race? Well, let's not just think about the whole world. What about Europe? By 1914... Most of Europe was plunged into one of the bloodiest wars that's ever been known. You would have thought that after that we would have learned our lesson, but by 1939 we did it again. <laughs> and it's said that the 1900s have been the bloodiest century in the history of human civilization. More people have died in the 1900s in any, than in any previous century by violence and bloodshed. So the optimism that we've had going into the 1900s wasn't really that well founded. And isn't it significant as we get to the, towards the end of the 1900s to the millennium, and this is where we've been alive. I, I was born in 1970, I know I look a lot older than that. But um, when I was born in 1970, someone, a French guy in 1979, caused, co coined the phrase postmodernism. And What's happened as we've got to the end of the 1900s is that people have begun to think, none of that's weight. All of our leaders are really corrupt. They're all in it for themselves. You can't really trust anyone. The only thing that's left really is just to enjoy ourselves and make the best of what we've got. I don't really care what anyone else thinks. Modernism said, and rationalism said, that truth is out there somewhere if only we can think our way to finding it. But as we get to the end of the 1900s, truth now isn't out there and something to be debated and sought. Truth now is inside every individual person. What's true for you is true. 
It doesn't matter whether it's absolutely true. It doesn't matter if it makes you feel good, makes you happy. Just pursue that. And no one has the right to tell you that you're wrong. There is no over, overarching meta-narrative, we're told. What's important is that you retreat into yourself, find your own truth, and if that works for you, that's fine. Is that, is that not the sign of a civilization almost that has begun to be in decline? And there are parallels there, I don't want to press it too far, with a civilization like the Menage that just kind of declined. And you've got people who've got within them the seeds of frustration. They've got the seeds of the promise of greatness that didn't quite materialize. Disappointment. And what happens is they begin to retreat into themselves and think, well, we might as well just live for now because there's no point aiming for those things. The fact that Crete's an island as well is interesting because closer to the coming of Jesus, the, because it's an island in the Mediterranean, there's a whole thing about piracy and uh, the whole island of Crete became a breeding ground for militants, every kind of thug, thief, criminal. This was a hiding ground for undesirables, well, you can imagine how the, the culture of Crete has developed. Disappointment, self-obsession, no one's going to tell us what to do. Hello. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. No one's going to tell us what to do. And when you add into that the kind of brutality that comes with a sort of criminal underworld in a small island like that, it is no wonder that one of their own poets or prophets, as Paul calls them, says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's a very strong thing to say about your own country, isn't it? And Paul says the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. Can you get a sense of how hard this job is for Titus? Do you sometimes think as a Christian believer how on earth are people in our culture going to hear the gospel? Sometimes I talk to people and I talk about my Christian faith and they say, that's nice for you. Does it really matter to me? It's nice for you. Kind of postmodern, what works for you, if that works for you, that's nice. The whole idea of tolerance, but don't preach at me. I don't really want to feel like you are trying to make me something that I don't really want. We, we live in a culture that's fragmented, where people withdraw into themselves the only thing that matters is feeling good and getting as much entertainment as you can and there's no sense of moral stability or grounding or shape. I think there's a lot of parallels between this culture and our culture. And Paul leaves Titus here in this place with instructions that the gospel is the agent for change. That means Titus has to understand this culture. It means that he's got to be wise in the way he preaches and teaches 
and relates to people in that culture. It certainly means that he, he wants to mobilize and train the people in those churches to be aware of these issues and not just to be isolated, but to go into that culture and engage with them. And these are the kind of things that we're trying to do here in our church in a very difficult there was a day when I suppose England would be described as a Christian country, but I think that day's past. And this, this isn't a Christian culture anymore. It prides itself on being a tolerant culture, but the only thing our culture is intolerant of is, is, is people who say that they have absolutes. Anyone who says that what I believe is true for you as well as for me will be marginalised in this culture it's becoming increasingly difficult even to debate those issues without being silenced. I was walking through Sheffield yesterday afternoon, next Sunday. Have you all filled in the census yet? What a big job that is. How many pages is it? Someone told me you could do it online. I haven't done ours yet. Um, I don't know whether we have to include giant hours. Maybe we do this time. Census. There's been a big push by humanists to change the question about religion because they claim when, when you put it on there what are you and people put Church of England and they, they never go to church the humanists say that gives a false representation and makes England look like a more religious culture than it really is and when you actually look at the number of people who go to church they've been lobbying the government to change the question so that people will be able to answer it differently, so that they'll then, over the next 10 years, to the next census, be able to say, actually, Britain is an atheistic culture. We were walking through Sheffield yesterday, and there was the Sheffield Humanist Society there, with all their literature trying to encourage people to answer the question, and don't put you in the Church of England. Even though you were Christian, you don't go anymore, put none. And they're lobbying for people to put no religion. So, very interesting days that we live in. And the, and the idea behind it is that they believe that religion influences our public life far too much and people of no faith don't have any say. I wonder what planet these people are on. <laughs> I certainly don't feel as a Christian that um, Christianity is a strong influence uh, in, in our politics or in our modern culture. That's a big subject. So there's Crete, very similar culture to our own. And here's Titus. What do we know about Titus? Well, it's very interesting that Titus comes after 1 and 2 Timothy, isn't it? And I, I think this is a really beautiful study, that Paul, Paul was clearly, as an apostle, an extremely dynamic leader. Uh, he, he was chosen by God as an apostle of Christ. And he, he says it here in verse 1, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. God had entrusted him with a big task, along with the other apostles. And Paul travelled, as you know, extensively around the Mediterranean, as far as Italy, maybe even got as far as Spain, we don't really know for sure. And um, in that work, he needed helpers. He couldn't be in all places at the same time. And at different times, he's got Luke with him. He wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. He takes Silas with him. There's a man called Mark, uh, John Mark, Barnabas. And the, the relationships between these men are very instructive for us as we do church here in Rotherham. I was thinking about us going through the process of uh, calling Richard as an assistant minister to work alongside me here 
in our small church. You'll perhaps know the story of Barnabas in Antioch. And uh, in the book of Acts, it's pretty clear that God did amazing things in Antioch. Many, many people were being converted. And Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph. He was a good and a godly and a, a man and a people person. But you can imagine him. People are being converted and the whole thing feels like it's falling apart around his ears. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to organise things. This is really awkward. And so he calls the church together and he says, listen guys, I'm going to go to Tarsus. I've got a friend there called Saul. Well, he's called Paul now. And the, you can imagine the people in the church meeting saying, oh, please don't leave us. If you're gone for two or three weeks on a journey, what's going to happen to the church here? Well, I'm not going to come back empty-handed. And he goes down to Tarsus. And you can imagine the conversation he has with Paul. Paul, listen, mate. God's doing great things in Antioch. And I know that he's called you to ministry. What better place for you to learn how to minister than to come and help me in Antioch? And Paul says, go on then, I'll come. And the two men come back to Antioch. It says that Paul stayed there with Barnabas for two years. And what a Can you get a sense? This is what's going to happen as our church grows. There are going to be times when it's painful, confusing, it's going to feel like organised chaos. And what's needed is leadership, is it not? Men who have both the spiritual maturity and the organisational and managerial ability to organise church in a clear way. The very first thing Paul says to Cyrus is, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Can you see that there's a strategy going on here? Paul, under the authority of Jesus, is, is planting churches and training other men to help him in that process. Timothy, we know, was quite timid. And this is the interesting thing. And, and it's amazing how you've got these different uh, characters. When you, when, you go, when you think about Timothy... Um, just look at, just go back two pages to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and um, and just, just think with me about Timothy as an individual Timothy accompanied Paul on many journeys very very trusted confident and advisor almost Paul's protege as a young man and what does he say here in verse 4 well, at the end of verse 3, I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. No dad's mentioned there, interestingly. I'm persuaded it also now lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of being a prisoner. Can you see what Paul's saying to Timothy? Timothy is a, 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 an emotional, sometimes fragile, maybe even a little bit timid. But Paul, like a father with his son, is encouraging him. Timothy, you need to stand up and 
He's not asking him to change his personality, but he's wanting to just put some steel in his, in his spine so that he'll be able to stand up straight and be a good leader. So that's Timothy. Titus is a different character altogether. Titus was very involved in the church at Corinth. And you'll know, sometimes in culture, the word Corinthian means to be immoral. The, the church in Corinth was a mess. There was incest, immorality. Their church services were chaos. And Titus was the one man that Paul trusted to go there and sort out the mess in that environment. Do you sometimes wonder about churches being perfect? We only need to read the book of Acts and, and the letters that Paul wrote to realise that churches are not perfect. But Titus was not a Timothy. Titus, I think, personality-wise, was more like Paul, a very dynamic. He, he, he had diplomacy and he had skills, but he was a no-nonsense, very dynamic leader. And he was able to shoulder the responsibility. He was able to put people in their place who needed putting in their place. He was able to defend Paul's authority. When Titus went to Corinth, it seems that some people in the church were saying, who's Paul anyway? He writes these big posh letters and then when he comes in person, he's weak as anything. He tells us he's coming to Corinth and then doesn't turn up because he's delayed and gone somewhere else. And Titus is the one who has to defend Paul's authority and tell people in the church to wind their necks in and stop being immature and to grow up a little bit and in the middle of all that there's a famine going on in Jerusalem and Titus is given the job of opening up a collection for the church in Corinth to support the church in Judea who are going through a famine the point I'm making to you is that Titus is a solid trustworthy strong leader and do we not need man like that in the church the reason that I left you in Crete Titus was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I told you to and you know Titus that there are people here who are just talkers they love to talk but they're deceiving people legalistic immoral they need silencing because they're ruining whole families. Preach the gospel, Titus. Find men that you can trust who love Jesus and train them to lead well as I've trained you. Chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, Titus. Teach the older man. Teach the older women. Teach the younger women. Teach the younger man. Why? Because God's grace has appeared. Salvation has come. And it's invading the sinful cultures of this world. And teaching people to base their lives on God's word, God's truth, Jesus' power and grace. That's the agent for change, Timothy. Preach it, brother. <laughs> That's what he's saying to Titus. Chapter 3, remind the people to be good citizens. Teach them not to be awkward, militant. 
Teach them to be peaceable, not slanderous, to be humble. And teach them to remember that they once lived in this brutal, selfish, pleasure-centered culture, living in malice and envy. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, regenerated us, as Jai was saying earlier. He's given us the renewal of his Holy Spirit, who he's lavished, poured out upon us generously through Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Stress these things, Titus, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to do what is good, it's excellent and profitable for everyone. Well, I think that's a good overview of the book. What about our church then, as we just draw to a close and try and apply some of that? The gospel is our foundation. It's the only agent for change. The gospel is the thing that has brought you to Christ. The gospel is the thing that brings repentance and faith and a right orientation in our lives between us and God. As we come into a relationship with God, it shapes our relationships with one another. None of us are perfect. We still make mistakes. We still say hurtful things. But because of the gospel and for Jesus' sake, we're committed to living together with a sense of gospel community. Holiness, righteousness, godliness, loyalty, commitment, energy, vitality these are the things that the gospel should shape and as we grow as a church, how crucial it is for men like Richard, even young men like Jai to come in and to learn and to, how to handle the Bible how to teach it, how to apply it how to lead people and pastor people how to organise and lay a foundation so that the church can grow with a sense of godliness and discipline that's what Paul was doing with Titus. He was doing it in a very difficult culture. And so are we. I want to encourage you not to lose confidence in the gospel, but to believe that it's the gospel that will transform your own hearts and lives. And it's the gospel that will transform our culture. And hopefully as we go through this little letter, just over three or four weeks as we run up to Easter we could be really challenged to, to build our church on the gospel and to see that transforming our lives and our community's lives let's be praying that that will be the case let's be praying that God would give us wisdom as we speak to people who are not Christians let's pray that God will give us wisdom as unbelievers come into our church family and experience some of the things that we're doing Let's pray that they'll come face to face with Jesus and not with something that's either wacky or liberal. Did I say to you, I got a lovely email just yesterday from a guy who said, I can't get it out of my head what you were saying about Jesus dying for our sins. That's the gospel. And let's be praying for people like him as they're grappling with that, that they'll come to faith and repentance. And what a joy it will be to hear people standing up here saying, this is what I was, 
but because of Jesus this is what I now have and what a, what a message that will be to take into our town and culture.